Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2008. Or is it? Because we have a first in the Bond franchise this time. It is the first Bond sequel, with action picking up directly after the events of Casino Royale. So have we moved through time? What's going on? I have people here with me to help decode the film that is Daniel Craig's second outing, Quantum of Solace. And there's no point in me doing any more elaborate introduction because the song does not have Quantum of Solace in the title because we could invent a false Quantum of Solace. It would just be really weird. So we have Alicia Keys and Jack White doing Another Way to Die, which actually has grown on me. I didn't like it at first, but it's grown on me. But anyway, we'll get to that. We'll get to the theme song. Let me introduce, as always, a man who likes nothing more than to put on a really, you know, cute little orange top and maybe a little sort of a tan coloured skirt and some sandals <laughs> and just get on board a speedboat with a general that murdered his family in a quest for revenge. It's Stuart Late. Hey, look, Natalie, it's what I call a Saturday afternoon. It's fine. Don't don't <laughs> don't shame me for my my practices. Hey, whoa, whoa, wait, hey, hey, wait, wait, can you feel that? I'm I'm shaking around a lot. I, I don't know where that's coming from. I, there's lots of quick cuts happening. Oh, my God. Wait, this podcast just jumped forward in time. And again, yeah. and again, what's happening? I'm doing some crazy editing in post. Yes, that is definitely a trend with this film, uh, which we will talk about, no doubt. But let us introduce, for a third, a record third time, co-hosting here on the Raven Bond podcast, which I don't think I even introduced what the podcast was, but that's fairly typical <laughs> by this point. Yes, it is the Raven Bond podcast, where we have been re-watching and reviewing every film in the Bond franchise. He was with us for Octopussy, he came back for GoldenEye, and now this is his take on Daniel Craig. It's Tom Selinski! Hey. Hello there. Does this mean I'm now officially a recurring character rather than a guest star? Yeah, I feel like you're the new M, or at least a Bill Tanner. I'll take Bill Tanner. <laughs> who is now Rory Kinnear in this film, so... Yes, with hair. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> we are here to talk Quantum of Solace, which is the second Daniel Craig outing, and as I mentioned, a sequel. Now, I'm going to throw to you chaps for initial, early, possibly spoilery uh, reactions to this film. And Stu, I'm going to guess yours is something to do with the camera work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does feature in my minute challenge list, Natalie. But I, I think basically the my, my overall impression of this film is, as I said last week, I had never seen this film before. I, this was done. the one film that missed me. Yeah, I know. I know, right? There was a couple in the canon, including License to Kill, which I'd never seen. And then this film, which I had never seen previously, just for various reasons. I think I, I it was a weird time at the time for me, like going to the cinema and things like that. I think we worked out, Nat, that at that point I was doing very early morning shifts, working at the radio station we used to work at. So I probably didn't get along for that reason. I just didn't get along to see it at the cinema. And then the reviews were so savage at the time that I just never got around to watching it. I thought, oh, well, if, if it, apparently everyone says it's bad, so I won't bother. But I'm glad I finally watched it because it's fine. Like, it's, <laughs> not, it's not great, but it's not bad. It doesn't suck. It does a lot of interesting things. The editing is very disorientating, but otherwise, like, it, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. And there's stuff that it does badly as well. I think it's a really interesting film. Tom, your thoughts? Yeah, Stu, you're joined by a, uh, a very interesting English writer and script editor called Andrew Ellard. Uh, right, who okay. For a long time. He's, I'm aware of uh, Andrew's work, yes. His insights into Doctor Who are very, very interesting. And he is a, a staunch defender of Quantum of Solace to the point where he's actually just recently launched a Kickstarter 
mm. which will fund the production of a series of videos about the Daniel Craig James Bond, starting with Quantum of Solace, which he intends to rehabilitate. Absolutely. Uh, but on this, rarely, uh, he and I disagree. Uh, okay. Because uh, although I agree this movie does attempt some interesting things, it, as far as I can tell, fails at almost all of them. <laughs> it is a mess. The plot is not the worst thing about it. it it's no, probably no worse than a lot of the Bond plots around it, but it, it's significantly more nonsensical than Casino Royale. The editing, as we've said, is a disaster. The performances are pretty bad, which is really surprising for a movie of this caliber. And mm. there are, actually, no, no, there aren't, I was going to say there are no jokes. There's one joke and it's, uh, it's really nice when it turns up, but there's one joke and for a Bond film, that's not enough. <laughs> okay, can we just start with your joke? Because I completely forgot about looking for jokes in this film. Isn't that weird? It was like it suckered me into this alternative universe action movie the only kind of mindset and I I think maybe I forgot I was watching a Bond film <laughs> maybe I mean I will tell you what I put down first on my minute challenge list was a disturbing lack of sex scenes uh <laughs> What the hell, Bond? Well, we get um, Tim uh, posed in a chair in a way that no human has ever sat. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's not even really, there wasn't even really a sex scene. It's just that he's kissing her back in bed. Like, there's no, like, languid lovemaking, as much as I hate the term languid lovemaking. <laughs> <laughs> It sort of struck me. And so I think that that shows maybe where our relative interests lie or I guess level of maturity because Tom's looking at the humour and the lack of that and I'm just going, oh, where's the sex, bro? Come on. Where is it? Where is it? Let me ask you a question about the women in this film. What are their character names without looking it up? Okay, so there's the uh, Strawberry Fields. Fields. She's never called Strawberry She's on never... screen. She's only yeah. ever called Fields. I think yes. that was yeah. a joke they thought better of possibly correctly yeah so we have one character with with only a surname yes and, and then i know i know that that olga kurilenko is playing a character called camille only because camille is my sister's name so that stood out to me <laughs> yes. i think it's mentioned twice on it, screen yeah. but it goes yeah, by yes. very quickly and again her surname is never said on screen although i believe she does have one of the credits yes no uh, that's... So that's a bit of an indication of how in these characters are <laughs> yeah it it, it it very much is and because i going into the film forgot who are the bond girls in this and then i had the vague memory of oh someone gets covered in oil in a tribute to goldfinger but i couldn't have told you i think that's a really good test tom that i yeah uh, you're right it is the women mathis is on screen for what a quarter of the time that olga karyonko is and you know everything you need to know about him and fair enough he's a returning character from the previous film but the women are so disappointing in this film and that maybe that's why they couldn't be bothered to have bond go to bed with the leading lady Well, I read an interesting thing in my research, aka Wikipedia, which is where the director wanted to focus on M and and her relationship with. He liked the fact that M had been brought into Casino Royale a bit more, but wanted to increase that and wanted to really show the relationship between M and Bond as he's the she's the only woman that he doesn't look at in a sexual context. Therefore, their relationship is the most interesting. Which I, you know think is one view of it i don't necessarily agree 100 percent correct but you've uh, written bond and m fan fiction haven't you natalie (laughs) no 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 what i mean is i think that bond has very interesting relationships with women he does have sex with like i don't think that you know the relationship with m is i just just think it's different i don't think it's complex but also shut up don't yuck my yum (laughs) (laughs) i have lots to say about bond and m 
in this film? Shall I say it now or shall I? do you want to do your minute let's, challenge first? Yeah, or? let's do our minute challenge. I've already given a hint of mine. Stu, Stu, it's your turn to go through. So do you want to just list off? Cool, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, the first thing I had on, on the top of my list was this doesn't suck, but it's not great. So that, that was interesting. We've kind of touched on that already, but I'll, I'll just mention it again. I also had Craig seems off in this. He seems, it's strange. Like, like I, I don't know exactly what it is, but to me, like, like he absolutely knocks it out of the park in Casino Royale and then this movie is supposed to be immediately after the end of that movie and he just it just feels off it, it feels strange somehow I'm not sure what it is I think he maybe like went too far down the, the blunt instrument route and I think he pulls it back enough in time for Skyfall but I think this one it's just he feels slightly like he's still feeling out the character a bit I, I think he maybe I, lost it a little I wonder if he was just exhausted because apparently what he has said is Casino Royale was a cakewalk compared to the training he had to do for this film because there's a lot more physical (laughs) the stunts in this like yeah so he had to do a lot of more cardio and training and he actually wasn't as big as he was in casino royale so we remember that famous scene of him emerging from the waters like ursula andres in the small blue shorts but he wasn't that big he was more toned and and lean but he i think he got injured on the set of casino royale so they wanted to be a bit more careful having said that we can get to this later there were a whole bunch of injuries and <laughs> crashes and stuff on this filming set. But that's I also, now par for the course for the Bond films. Yeah, that's right. But I hadn't, I hadn't really heard of many since, I think, was it maybe in the 80s with some of the later Roger Moores, but they kind of seem to get a bit better. But now they've had a, they have a few crashes and various accidents. <laughs> but also this writer's strike that happens around the same time, he talks about how he was like working on scenes with the director And they were trying to work out like how to rewrite and how to improve and punch up because the writers weren't allowed to due to the union rules and the strike. So maybe, and Tom might be able to shed some more light on this, but maybe he was just exhausted as trying to cover a whole bunch of different things. Sure. And this is the thing. And and again, Tom, you might be able to shed some light on this, but it's always amazing to hear stories from, in particular, the 2008 writers' strike because it, it took out like a number of TV shows as well. Um, And a number of movies were affected by it. And obviously this one was caught up in it as well. And the idea that that you would go into a movie just thinking, oh, we'll change a bunch of things. Like, I'm sure it's fine. Like, like the fact that they haven't got the script locked down is always insane to me. And maybe that's naive. I've never worked in the entertainment industry in that way. So I'm not sure if that's like par for the course or whether that's unusual. But the the idea that they were like, no, we just we just had to rewrite the script on the fly is just bananas to me on a multi-million dollar movie. I think people always underestimate how long it takes to write a script and how many. (laughs) iterations you need and how unpredictable the process is sure and so i think what happens is the big studios have these big movies their tentpole releases and they begin with the release date and work backwards from there yeah and sometimes that works sometimes you allow six months to write the script and the script comes out in six months and it's perfect but sometimes the script just because of you know the the randomness of the universe is going to need another six months and you no longer have that because once that production starts that is an unstoppable boulder rolling down a hill and it will keep rolling until it hits the bottom and that's the release date and nothing's going to stop it. When that (laughs) doesn't happen, when it goes wrong, then you're looking at disasters like Cleopatra and Heaven's Gate and Ishtar and things like that. That's when everything's out of control, budgets are spiralling, release dates get shifted and you're almost looking at a disaster. And I think the Bond producers were also looking back to the heyday of the 70s when a new Bond film just came off the production line and the 80s, if it comes to that, 
a new Bond film just came off the production line every two years. So they got back mm. in business. They had a Bond mm. that everybody loved. They'd made a film that everybody thought was fantastic. And they were determined to get another one out two years later and another one after that and another one after that. And of course, that's not what happened <laughs> for a bunch of reasons. But I think that was very much the intention. Let's let's get back on that 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 regular production schedule well yes and it was supposed to come out in may 2008 the script was written by neil purvis and robert wade by april 2007 and then started polishing after that by paul haggis um, who i think by the end of this film's production certainly by its release i think had left scientology so he was probably going through a lot um, <laughs> <laughs> but i do want to just mention with the writing so this was actually based on an idea by michael g Wilson, who of course is one of the producers along with his half-sister Barbara Broccoli, and he had been inspired by um, current events regarding water shortages and that sort of thing and wanted to do this kind of environmental story. And it's the first environmentally based Bond film since The Man with the Golden Gun and the crazy sun-powered laser that Scaramanga gets. <laughs> Did you just snort in dis- disgust, Tom? <laughs> So maybe there was a good reason they'd left environmental things. But, yeah, apparently Michael G. Wilson got keen. So I guess I can imagine, because he had co-written and, and co-created a number of the scripts in the Roger Moore era. So I can, I guess I can kind of see him going, yep, I've got it. I think they announced that the film would be in production and the release date before they announced the title, but it was pretty much as Casino Royale was in post-production. So they, as you say, Tom, they'd really committed and gone, yep, we're going to get this out and then – things happen and then the writer's strike happens. So Haggis said that he completed his script two hours before the 2007-2008 Writers Guild of America strike officially began. So he got that in last minute. And I'm interested in the fact that it was a producer who went, I've got an idea. And then the script writers had to make it happen. I don't think that's particularly unusual. It's it's not at all uncommon for there to be different voices in the mix, different people pitching ideas at different times. And the Bond franchise is very producer-led. And as he said, Michael G. Wilson's name is on the credits as screenwriter for half a dozen of these movies. Mm. I think what's I think what happened after the point that Paul Haggis turned in his draft and was no longer able to work that anymore, I think in big ways and small ways, there was nobody who like had the story in their head anymore. Mm. Uh, and that, mm. I think, is when things start to fall apart. It's one thing which really jumped out to me this time, which is a very, very it's a tiny, tiny thing, really. But I think it just illustrates that no one's really thinking this through. So Bond hears the name Dominic Green. In fact, he recognises it. I think Olga Kurlenko says Green, and he says Dominic Green, or maybe the other way around. So this is a famous man. Mm. The fact that he's done everything, which according to the script he has, indicates that he's a world-famous man. Hmm. So he gives this information to Mission Control, MI6, and they, their response is, there's a lot of Dominic Greens in the world. <laughs> it doesn't occur to them he's talking about the most famous one. Yes. And then they say, do you have his social security or passport number? That was weird. Now, the joke presumably was, do you have his social security number? Because social security numbers are things that Americans know by heart and will quote in order to identify themselves. Mm. But in Britain, it would be national insurance number. And nobody knows the national insurance number. People don't (laughs) go around quoting it. I always have to look mine up on, on my tax form at the end of the year on the very rare occasions that anyone does want to know what it is. So presumably then somebody said, well, shouldn't it be national insurance? insurance number and then someone else said well but then americans won't get that and then someone else said what about passport number so now it becomes do you have a social security or passport number which kills the joke stone dead yeah. <laughs> 
And all this, I can just imagine all this happening in a, in a blind panic and they're shooting five different versions of that line or redoing it in ADR after the shooting's over because nobody actually knows on a macro or a micro level what is happening with this script. <laughs> yeah. And they probably didn't get that it was meant to be a joke. Yeah, Almost it, certainly not. As I say, there, there is a total dearth of good jokes in this, it, in this it script. It doesn't play like a joke, that line. I just remember that standing out for me going, what a weird thing to say. Like, how would he have his social security number? Isn't that a private thing that you... <laughs> at what point is he going to say, hey, I'm a bit suspicious of you. Would you mind giving me your social security number? I could just check it out. No reason, no reason. Like, I don't think this is... Yeah, it just struck me as odd. And I also couldn't quote you my passport number. Should I be able to do that? No, exactly. I, no, I, I, I sincerely d- doubt that. And do we we don't have social security numbers in Australia, do we, Stu? We don't sort of have a... Not that like I'm aware of, no, nothing, nothing. No, we don't really have an equivalent. We have a tax file number. Yeah, maybe that maybe that is... For your filing yeah. your taxes. But again, so. I, I don't know that off the top of my head. I'll yeah, have no. to look it up. I have to look it up every time <laughs> and I don't have it written down anywhere central. I always have to go looking through old emails <laughs> to find it. and I always say, Natalie, write it down somewhere central. Never do. But it's okay. It's a challenge. It keeps me fresh. Keeps my brain ticking away. Stu, back to your list. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So uh, that, that, that's, that's a very, very good observation, Tom, like just in terms of I, that had never occurred to me, but you're right. Like Dominic Green, as presented in this film, is an incredibly famous man. And, and they're like, oh, which which Dominic Green? It'd be like saying, I'm I'm tracing Richard Branson. You know, like, and, oh, we, yeah. there's a lot of Richard Bransons in the world. <laughs> and also Bond had turned up at his headquarters where there was like Green Planet. He'd looked at his phone and no it was tracing he was looking at his phone and it was tracing where they were going and it said green planet so you'd yeah. think that he could say to them dominic green green planet what have you got <laughs> you're right it was just it was an odd moment it's very uh, strange hmm. uh, another thing that was strange very is high we... profile bond villains in the past you know, hugo drax is, is world famous uh, but that's acknowledged you know it's yes. just not acknowledged yeah. that he's he's using his fame and resources to end all human life on this planet. <laughs> he's, he's wisely kept that side of his business uh, under wraps. <laughs> Fair enough. I, um, so the next thing on my list is Quick Cuts. This is a very 2008 movie, namely uh, j- just the, the directing in this and the and the, the editing specifically. At times, like, like I'm, not a, I'm not the type of person who gets motion sick during movies, but mm. I, I came close. Like, like there, are, there are moments in this where I have no idea spatially what's happening. Yeah. A very weird The opening car chase movie. is such a mess. Uh, it's, yeah. It's two black cars chasing one grey car. Yeah. And it, actually, it, when they shot yeah. it, it was three black cars chasing... <laughs> one grey car and they they took out one of the chasing cars in the edit really it's it's incomprehensible absolutely incomprehensible would you like to know what the average shot length of quantum of solace is because i can only imagine less than a second it's 1.8 seconds wow oh my god back to the future an action-packed film yes has an average shot length of five seconds (laughs) wow goldeneye oh yeah has an average shot length of 3.6 seconds and that was only Oh, 10 years earlier, mm. Skyfall has an average shot length of 3.3 seconds. So Quantum of Solace really is the aberration here. Yeah. It is relentless. I think I had a slight stroke at one point. And it's, yeah. just, <laughs> it's 
borderline un- unwatchable. It, we definitely felt like, and I can't remember my experience watching in the cinema, but I, but I tend to be the person who has to sit way at the back of the cinema because really close up, particularly in action or, you know, kind of epic films or anything with a lot of shaky cam can really make me feel physically ill. <laughs> so I feel like I would have had to be right at the back kind of watching through my fingers. The Cut interesting that. thing about it that I found was that it was deliberately done that way. Like, like it wasn't a mistake and it wasn't the result of like overcutting or something like that. It was a stylistic choice because there's moments in the film where they do just linger on shots and, and there's longer shots and, and it's usually during dialogue scenes or when they're just talking or going somewhere. And then as the action ramps up, the shot length ramps up as well and that we get quick 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 cuts and it just seems to be like a stylistic choice of let's make the action as confusing to follow as possible which is a bold choice for a bond film <laughs> i'll grant you but you know it just seems it, at least it's it, it's a deliberate choice it's a choice that i hate but it's just interesting <laughs> that that's how they went like they're like let's make this action as choppy and confusing as possible it's, it's really also the shortest film in the franchise one uh, one hour 46 seconds. yes uh, one hour, <laughs> it's, one it's hour a breezy watch minutes. Well, this yeah. is interesting because the director, Mark Foster, said, or he's quoted as saying that he thought Casino Royale went too long. And do you remember last week, Stu, I did mention that as one of my slight cons to Casino Royale? I do well, it think- has that strange structure where it's got that weird, like, extended three-act structure. Yeah. So it kind of has to be really long to make it make sense for time-wise, but... Yeah. It's the novel with a prologue bolted on the beginning and an epilogue bolted mm. on the end. Yes, exactly, exactly. Once again, Tom, summing things up, <laughs> it took me <laughs> hours to say. <laughs> but um, he... And the just... of solace of Bond commentators. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark Foster wanted it to be quick like a bullet. That's how he described it. But I do wonder if that choppy style kind of does a disservice to all those stunt choreographers and stuntmen and women yes. who are doing these incredible physical feats. But you, for all you know, they could have just gone, now chop here, now move over that to that wall and turn around and chop that way and then kick that, you know, just cut it together. Like, I don't well, know. It reminds me a lot of how apparently, um, to, to jump on uh, George Miller's Fury Road again, <laughs> apparently that's how he shoots a lot of his action scenes and his fight scenes especially. He will have the actors set up and then they will do one move and then cut. And then he'll have everyone set up for the next shot and then they'll do another move and then cut and then he'll set up for the next one. And both Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy were both saying they were they were losing their minds, saying that I don't understand what's happening here. I don't think this is going to cut together properly. And then they saw a rough edit and they were like, oh, he's a genius. We know he knows exactly <laughs> what he's doing. Whereas, Do you know what George Miller was doing with that film? What was he doing? So he and the editor figured out a strategy that they'd always keep the key action right in the center of the yes. frame. Yep, so what that means is even if there's a cut coming every second, every half a second, your eye doesn't have to flick around the image in order to pick up where it should yep. be looking. You can, you can stay focused in the same part of the frame and you'll always be looking at the important thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, and it's, it's a technique. Mark Foster does not do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not. And that's the thing, like, you know, you, your eyes are darting here, there and everywhere. And then if they did it once, like if they did it once for like a, a scene that is meant to be disorientating and, and frenetic, then you could forgive the film. But they do it for every single action scene. Even a minor action scene is just chopped up into tiny chunks. And it's just so, it feels like a waste. It's like, so you shot all this stuff. Why are you not letting us look at it? There are other weird editing choices as well. That opening, well, not quite opening, but that scene where they're interrogating Mr. White, which is really the setup for all of the rest of the movie, they keep cutting to the bullring. 
Yes. Nothing <laughs> happens in the bull ring. No. Is it is it thematic? Is it is it just that literally Mark Forster has got such ADHD he can't actually keep the camera focused on one conversation for longer than fifteen seconds at a time without cutting away? It's well, just so peculiar. According to the Wikipedia page, they actually went and filmed the Palio de Siena horse race, which is is what they use before the main unit began shooting. So I think that what it was is, look, we've we've gone and filmed all this stuff. We'd better put it in the movie. <laughs> that <laughs> so, is not a good reason to put things in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the, the vibe that I got. Wow. Uh, Thank you, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so so to, to, to quickly chop away like this mood to, to take the example of this movie, the next thing on my list is, hi, Gemma Arterton, bye, Gemma Arterton. <laughs> She was in the film for about five minutes. Great. Hello. Goodbye. I hated her death. I hated her death scene. I thought it was tacky, and I thought it was a weirdly placed tribute to Goldfinger. Well, I had another... It's very strange. Yeah, I had another query. After watching the film a second time, this popped into my brain... Oh, sorry. After watching the film this time, this popped into my brain, and I'd never really thought about it before. So the whole point, the whole big reveal of this film is that everyone thinks or Bond thinks that Dominic Green is been, has been buying up Pipeline with the mm. idea that he is going to uh, he's going to own and control this portion of Bolivia where geologists have said that there's no oil, but somehow he's got some secret knowledge and that hints at oil, oil, oil. Yeah. And certainly the CIA, they think that he's got the inside knowledge that he knows that there's going to be oil there and they don't want to interfere with any of the politics because they want to get access to the oil because sure. it's a you know very much referring to american involvement in latin america throughout the <laughs> second half of the 20th century really and beyond so and then it turns out to be chinatown i mean water yes yes, <laughs> yes it does and so the thing for me is why do they cover her in oil when the whole point is that it's water that they want. Oh, oh because... Covering because... her in water is less likely to be fatal. <laughs> uh, I mean, less likely to Well, it was for Vespa. Yeah. True, true. true. Uh, um, but, but no, that, that's part of the cover. Like, I got the idea that that was possibly part of the... Like, because everyone I thinks he's it. like an oil-based villain. So yeah. he's going to... His big calling card is going to be cover her in oil. That's right. He's bigging up that sort of... Uh, keeping the mystery except, going. Except, is it? Like, like, that's a good point, though. Like, because, I mean, I made that connection, but why would they kill her like that yeah why don't they just shoot her what you yeah. know especially in a much more grounded bond like, like this is still quite grounded coming off the back of casino royale yeah it's definitely it, a, it's very a very extravagant death for yeah. a, a relatively minor character it's very strange but then m does make that point to him saying she worked in an office bond then why did she send her i know i was just about to say why then why is she in the field m i think this is maybe a little bit your fault yes or who knows bond who knows what he's like thinks to herself the ideal person to get him back is somebody that he is definitely going to be romantically <laughs> attracted to, is somebody who does not have the experience to face him down, yeah. uh, and is somebody who is going into a dangerous situation that she's totally unprepared for. Yep. I mean, it makes a lot of questionable choices in this film, but that's probably the, the most absurd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let us let's put Parker Pin in M because we definitely want to talk about that. Um, but Stu, yeah, keep going with your list. Yep. Uh, so I had uh, white slate and green. Quantum uh, seems to have a certain type of employee in mind. Oh my gosh! 
But but the weird thing is that Dominic Green is called Dominic Green. He's not like Mr. Green in like a, a Reservoir Dog style code name. Yeah. But Mr. White, I presume that's his actual name and Mr. Slate as well. So, you know, it's like a cute thing. But if you think about it too hard, it kind of falls apart. <laughs> which I guess represents this movie pretty well. <laughs> I had never yeah. really made that connection of all the coloured names. Yeah, quantum-like yeah, so colour names. There's another character. This is actually something else I got from Wikipedia, talking again about um, character names. So Wikipedia has this entry. Apparently one of the uh, supporting cast is Antoine Tobman as Elvis, Green's second-in-command. Yes. Tobin wanted to make Elvis as colourful, as edgy and as interesting as possible, with one of his suggestions being the bowl haircut. Almerick and Taubman improvised a backstory for Elvis. He is Dominic's cousin and once lived on the streets before being inducted into Quantum. He called Elvis a bit of a goofball. He thinks he's all there, but he's not really. He's not a comic guy. He definitely takes himself very serious, but maybe by taking himself too serious, he may become friendly. I have no recollection of this character ever being in the movie, <laughs> which I finished watching an hour ago. I did I mean, none less than none <laughs> zero I did remember yeah I did remember the bowl cut I think I noticed that from it's just it's out of placeness Yeah I um, didn't know that guy was called Elvis that's no, insane another name that just goes whoop the only name that really stands out in this whole film is Dominic Green that's really it yeah, um, he's super famous <laughs> <laughs> Is he though? You Literally everybody knows his name <laughs> Stu, how you going? And then I'll I'll, I'll have uh, one more thing, which is just uh, awkward car kiss. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Very strangely played moment. Um, I which I think is intentional. I think it's meant to be. You know, Bond is kind of just operating on sense memory at that point. Like you know that the he's been through all this stuff with the pretty girl, and then he goes in for the kiss, and she kind of pulls away, like just sort of like she kisses him, but then she's like, okay, bye, and then leaves. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very strange. Uh, I don't know. I, I have nothing more to say that, that it was very weird. It's a very strange scene. I had forgotten that this film does not end with Bond having a, he has a mid-film love affair. I, I honestly think it's because they went, well, we need to have at least one girl that he has sex with. Like, it's a Bond film. We have to just put one in there. Because I think you could have you could have done without the Fields character completely. I think I feel yes, like it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Think, yeah, she's she's there for Bond to sleep with and then die. Uh, yeah, and for the one good joke. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Bond refuses her choice of hotel, which Field says is good for their cover. Uh, so he marches into the fanciest hotel in town, yeah. oh. uh, <laughs> adopting their cover, saying, uh, "We're teachers on sabbatical, and we've just won the lottery." Yeah. <laughs> he kind of looks at that. That's that's a great joke, and it's played well, and it totally fits the character. I loved it. That was good. Fields, though, is supposed to be a throwback to, and I guess this is pretty obvious with the whole covered in oil thing, but she's supposed to be a throwback to the 60s. So all her costume design, her red wig is supposed to be reminiscent of Diana Rigg, Tracy Vicenzo. She's supposed to have the 60s style. She's got her long boots and a very short Macintosh that she's wearing. Yeah, I was about to say, she was in. A, yeah. she comes in in a weird um, trench coat. Yeah, which well, she kind of looks nude underneath. Yeah, I was about to say, it makes it look like that's the only thing she's got on. It's very strange. Yeah. And it's really awkward, their whole sex scene, because there's no seduction. It's just they walk into this big fancy hotel room, as you say, Tom, after they he's saying we're teachers on sabbatical, and he just goes, I can't find the stationery. Can you come help me? Oh, and then, it's like, dreadful. cuts to him kissing her back. It's just like there's no – she just kind of laughs, and then it's just – 
in bed. There's no. Now, is that meant to be mid sessions? Do you think have they already gone a couple of rounds and and they're just having a rest or like is that like is that that... that's kind of the vibe I guess that they're sort of you know because the next flight out is until the next morning and he said we've got all night so I guess he figures you know and then Mathis turns up with an invitation to the big party. I do like the fact that Bond films do always he's always in town at the right time for the big event. Like, in two weeks. Oh, like, man. You know, like the big horse race in Siena. Like, that's obviously an annual thing, uh, but it just happens to be on, you know. And this is because, of course, the whole point of Bond films is to be in glamorous, exciting, wonderful places where there's lots of action and interesting things. So, of course, they're going to be on. I think in, is it uh, Spectre, where they start off with Day of the Dead in Mexico? Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, and, of course, it's like, well, if you're going to be in Mexico, of course, be there when it's day of the day. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, a similar thing, that they're in town and Dominic Green just happens to be throwing a party. But he has they have this weird relationship with Green throughout the film where he tries to kill Bond several times. Mm. He even tries to get the Americans to make sure he doesn't interfere. But then he's at the party and they just kind of have a – you know, a little bit of a confrontation. Um, it's kind of a weird confrontation as well, isn't it? They sound like they're at high school. Yes. He's trying to push the girl. Um, see, I've forgotten her name. Yeah. Olga. Olga is Camille. the actress. Camille. Camille. Apparently. He pronounces it like Cami because he's, he's got that – because he's a French actor and he's, he's got that accent, so it always sounds like Cami to me when he pronounces it on the odd occasion. That they, he, they, they sound like they're both of them. They sound like they're saying, but she, no, she, she told me that she liked me, actually. So actually, <laughs> you, can just, you can just go away because she's mine. It's ridiculous. And then for some reason, Fields goes up the stairs as they're coming down and like trips a henchman up or something. Is that the reason why they kill her? I'm not sure. Just, well, yeah, but I'm, that the also confusing. I don't like this scene is the best scene in the film is about 10 or 15 minutes before this. The Puccini scene, I think, really is excellent. It's very suspenseful. It's beautifully done. Yeah. From everything being grimy and dirty, which is very unusual for Bond films. Something much more glamorous, much more fun. It's smart. What a brilliant way for Mm. a secret organization to Mm. meet and share ideas absolutely in public, but with hidden earpieces while the music's going on. Mm. And it's classy, too. When the action kicks off, they drop the sound effects out. And it really, really works well. But then we go from Bond surveilling Dominic Green at a big fancy event to 10 or 15 minutes later, Bond surveilling Dominic Green at a big fancy event. Mm. Yeah. And the second one feels like, just what, this again? It, it doesn't seem to add anything except for Bond making his own life harder because he's making it even more obvious to Green that he's the source of his problems. Which is fairly typical, but it just really stands out when these two scenes are almost back to back like that. <laughs> yeah. He is, as we always say, the worst spy. Uh, but, but actually, like, the, the interesting thing is, like, that's actually a really interesting tactic because, I, I mean, like, the, the film sets it up, but for him to be sort of up there, in the, up in the sort of uh, the eagle's nest perch, just watching everyone and then waiting for them to all get into a, a little rhythm and then dropping in and freaking everyone out so a bunch of people stand up to, to leave and boom, you've got them. You've got pictures yeah. of all of them. Bam, bam, mm. bam. That's fantastic. It's, it's brilliant. Great. It's, it's, it's really, really well stuff. done. Mm. Yeah, see, there, there, is, there, there are crumbs of things to enjoy in this movie. They're just fewer and far between, alas. But they are there. He then, of course, ruins it by just walking downstairs and looking at Dominic Green yeah. and just going, hi. <laughs> And they're still playing the music. They're still playing the Tosca because I think I think Tosca has a sort of a plot line that kind of refers or at least references or has, has a, what would you call it? There's a relatability between one aspect of Tosca, which is I think where a woman is 
compromised in regards to her lover. So she has to like do naughty things or is, you know, is blackmailed essentially because her lover's in danger. So I guess there's sort of a throwback there to Vespa. But yeah, the music is very grand. But then it continues this whole theme. I don't know if it's supposed to be a running joke through the movie because it kind of doesn't really come across as a joke where M keeps saying to Bond, could you please not kill every lead that we get? So every agent who turns out to be a a quantum agent or a potential quantum agent. So the MI6 double agent that was M's bodyguard at the start and then Edmund Slate, I think, in Haiti and then the guy, I think a special branch member who was protecting a prime ministerial advisor or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and I was gonna, I was gonna jump on that. Like, like I found that really interesting because I don't think we've really seen that in a Bond film before, where he kind of hits people with friendly fire, if that makes sense. Like that, that's a little close to home. That he's taken out a member of of the British, like not Secret Service, but um, uh, like like the the police. And I thought that was really interesting. Unfortunately, the movie does nothing with it after that. Like like they they use it to basically say Bond's on the run, but then he never really suffers any consequences because of that. Well, then they have that big scene with M after Fields is found dead, where she's like, that's it, license rescinded. I'm taking you off the case. Your ego's writing checks, your body count cash. <laughs> and, and then they, they put him in the elevator with two other guys. And as we remember from License to Kill, as you remember what I wrote, Stu, is Bond mm. proceeds to punch everybody in the dick and escape. He, he certainly <laughs> does. He does again that, here. That is an accurate description of what happens. And he literally walks back up to M. Everyone goes, else is out sorry. looking for him. And he's like, look, Fields was really brave. I want you to mention that in your report. And she's like, you can't go anywhere. And he's like, yes, I can. I'm off. Bye. And then when Tanner finds M, she's like, make sure you go after him because he knows something. He's my agent and I trust him. <laughs> so there's this real swing between that's it, you're off the case, to you know what, that plucky young James Bond is really good. <laughs> him savagely beating four MI6 agents is what really sent me over the edge on him. There's, there's something else going on here as well. So there's, as you say, there's this weird thing that M, almost like a kind of boss in a 1960s sitcom going, why I order every time he shoots a guy through the head. But also there's the fact that the whole kind of engine that drives the plot is that Quantum is this mysterious shadowy organization that has people everywhere. And suddenly M doesn't know who she can trust. Mm. So she keeps taking Bond off the case because he's gone rogue but nobody ever actually points the finger of suspicion at him. And that mm. seems to be where the plot is going, but it never actually arrives there. And he's had uh, this weird time where he's, he tries to book a plane ticket and his credit cards have been cut off, I assume by MI6. Yeah. There's no there's no reference to that later. It's just like, well, you're, you know, you're, still, you're still an agent. And then, as you say, for 90 seconds, his double O status is rescinded and he's <laughs> off the case. And then because he beats up four dudes and says something nice about Strawberry Fields, he's back on again. And then M gives those two instructions. Find out where he's going. He's my agent and I trust him. Right. The second one of those, as you said, bears no resemblance to the instructions that she gave two minutes earlier. Mm. And nothing ever comes of the first one because nobody does follow him and find out where he goes. Absolutely. And they kind of faint at it a little bit as well because they kind of like quantum sets it up to make it look like he's murdered Mathis and the two police officers. But then nothing comes of that either. Like, M doesn't suspect him again. This is the macro version of that line about the the social security number. Yeah. In big ways, no one really understands thematically what's going on with this story. Hmm. It doesn't really end up being about anything, and especially coming after Casino Royale 
that's so disappointing. Yeah, I've just realised that, yes, M says go get after Bond, chase after him. So actually you would expect the cavalry to turn up when Bond and Camille attack the eco-hotel in the desert, mm. but they don't. I just well, realised. He kind of, he he, kind of huh? loses them, I think. Like he, like they, they take that plane at one stage, so I guess. That's, no, that's that was earlier. before. That's earlier. Oh, of course it is, yeah. But, yeah, that's but before. But Stuart's right. That's weird as well because they get in a plane and the plane gets shot down and uh, in a kind of roadrunner fashion, they manage to survive. <laughs> Apparently, yes. you can open a parachute when you're like six feet from the ground. Yeah, that that Fine. that was insane. That's no trouble at all. He he would he would have most of the, the bones only, in his lower body broken. Yes. The only purpose of this presumably is to strand them at the bottom of this sinkhole with no hope of rescue. But they get out of that just by walking. Yeah. They get back to the location they were at before for some more exposition, and then they go back out to the fucking desert again. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of toing and froing. For somebody who said he was going to cut the shoe leather out, there's an awful lot of toing and froing in this film. Yeah, surprisingly so. Well, maybe the action sequences, because I did read that Mark Foster wanted the action sequences to reflect the elements of earth, air, fire and water. And so to pin to that, because what I wrote on my list, which I can start to get into after a disturbing lack of sex scenes, was so (laughs) many fight scenes or fight sequences and then to tie them through, you've got the you've got the the car chase pre credits, fine. You've got the horses and the bulls and the rooftops, which seems to be the earth chase. Then mm. you've got the water chase in Haiti with the boats. Sure. Where he rescues, I keep wanting to say Olga. <laughs> no, it's Camille, and she's trying to kill that general who killed her family. And he rescues her, and of course she's mad about it. So that seems to be the water one. Then there's the plane one and the parachute. That's air. And then there's the big scene at the end, which is fire. So maybe it's like a stylistic choice that to make that work for his directorial vision, the script had to kind of be shuffled around to ensure that it happened. Yeah, to make that happen, the script doesn't quite square peg round hole kind of thing. That's the best insight that I can give right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm not convinced the Bond audience is sitting there thinking to themselves, I'm really appreciating these allusions <laughs> to classical Greek philosophy. <laughs> And the thing is, is that Bond tends to have airplane scenes or in the air scenes, flight scenes. He has boat chases all the time. He has car chases uh, all the time. And fire. Well, there's a lot of explosions in Bond films, typically. It's not like like you've got a lot of other options. It's like, hmm, yes. (laughs) Yes. Really need the lead-based. For this Bond film, we're going to have stuff blow up. Yeah. And I did wonder why they used that big plane. Apparently that was the director wanted that sort of classical, that old plane that they fly in the desert. Because as they take off, you see like a small light plane nearby, which initially I thought, why don't they take that one? That would be a lot more nimble. But then I realised, oh, they need a really big plane so that when they're attacked by fighter jets, they've got, you know, a tiny little... Lots of room to be shot at. That's right. A tiny little single engine kind of or a little propeller plane would not survive fighter jet attack. So they need the big plane. So fair enough. Then Bond like pilots it into the sky, like vertically. I didn't understand yes. that. Well, he was trying to get the thing. The thing is, I, I immediately understood what he was doing. He was trying to get height so that the parachute would be effective. Oh. Right? But then they completely undercut that by having them open the parachute, as, as Tom said, about six feet off the ground. <laughs> I was looking at the, this on Wikipedia as well, and apparently they shot some of the freefall stuff in a wind tunnel. 
because they wanted to try and do it for real. The problem is they're now shooting in a stark white environment. So they have to do so much work to take out the background and adjust the lighting that it all looked completely digital to me. And I think sure. they probably would have had exactly the same effect on a green screen stage with a big fan. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, other things on my list included the first sequel. So I just thought it would be worth bringing that up as a conversation point is, can Bond do sequels? No, and I guess that... if this is an indication. <laughs> Or should Bond do sequels? Maybe is the well. It's not even meta- a sequel. It's like a it's like a weird vestigial continuation of Casino Royale because it starts immediately after the that film ended. Mm. And they get rid of the gun barrel shot just to make that happen. And I don't know that I approve of no. that. Yeah, bad bad trade off. It's such a key part of the Bond watching experience is that gunshot. And they put it at the end, but by the end it's like ah ah <laughs> sure. <laughs> Whatever. It's Apparently, not a spectre we get a Daniel Craig gun barrel at the beginning of the movie. Really? You're not going to get it next week either, yeah. Really? There's not right. Sam Mendes had said that he had every intention of putting it at the beginning of Skyfall, but that the opening shot was already a kind of iris kind of effect of looking at Daniel Craig, and they just thought it didn't work. So again, they put it at the end. Oh, I don't remember that. Totally. It also means there are huh. four different gun barrel sequences for the four Craig movies, uh, whereas uh, Connery and... Moore only had two, and Dalton only one. And what about Brosnan? I think they just yeah. reused the same piece of film. Brosnan only yeah. one. Uh, they, only one. They figured mm-hmm. that they they dickered about with it, but the shot of Brosnan walking here, he had to do that once, but Craig's mm-hmm. had to do that four times. <laughs> and of course, Jesus. The first time Connery did it, it wasn't Connery, as I'm sure you discussed. Yes, it was yes. Bob. Yeah, yeah. The stunt. Yeah. I think the stuntman. And he's got a hat on. It's so weird going back and watching that. It's like James <laughs> Bond with a hat on. <laughs> Something about it feels weird. Yeah, so the the concept of a sequel, which has ramifications going down the track, because as we find out in Spectre, ah, Spectre, um, it could be good. (laughs) Got a couple of weeks, could surprise me. But it's revealed that this shadowy organisation called Quantum is just a part of the bigger shadowy organisation called Spectre. I don't hate that as a concept. I, really? I like that they okay. le- I like that they kept their powder dry and they left a little room open to if in case they got Spectre back. Um, for me personally, I think it I think it I it, it it I don't hate that reveal. I but I hate Inspector, and we can talk about it when we get there. But I do hate the themes of like Blofeld is not just the architect of Spectre, but he's the architect of all Bond's pain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's bad, what I don't but... understand is uh, that they they had a big hit with Casino Royale and everybody loved it. I think on Rotten Tomatoes it's got, hang on, I, I did look this up one sec. Where's it gone? Casino Royale has got a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. So yeah. they then decided that people people like sagas, they like arcs, so we should do a direct sequel and carry that story on. <laughs> and Quantum of Solos get 65% yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. So for Skyfall, they cut all ties, basically, with previous films. You don't have to have seen a single other Bond film to appreciate what goes on in Skyfall. It absolutely stands alone. And Skyfall has 92 of Rotten Tomatoes. So it's fascinating to me that with Spectre, the lesson they drew from this evidently was <laughs> that arc stuff is really what we should be doubling down on. <laughs> <laughs> Spectre has 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. The only consolation that I take from that is that if we go by the good one, bad one, good one, bad one pattern, <laughs> No Time to Die is probably going to be good. That would be nice, wouldn't it? 
Oh, that is very interesting. Yeah, because that's practically the same, isn't it? 95, 92, just yeah. 65, 62. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. And I think it shows that even though, yes, modern audiences like the arcs of the Marvel movies and whatever, I don't think it's a requirement to do. And also Bond had kind of established itself as these standalone movies. You know, and, and certainly Spectre as an organisation continued over a number of films or was dropped as a hint first in the Connery era and then continued. So you can have the organisation there potentially, but also why have all this personal stuff? Like You sort of have Bond out for revenge for Tracy's death and Diamonds Are Forever, but it doesn't really work because everyone's played by a different actor. Yes, who cares? And, and it's, it's, about. It's, it's sort of promptly dealt with really before the opening credits because yeah. he thinks he's killed him uh, and then it's just revealed at the end that, oh, it's Blofeld again. <laughs> it could have been – his reaction <laughs> is such that it really could have been anyone. He doesn't – Connery doesn't seem to convey any kind of personal grief at all, which is fine. He was just doing it for the money. It's cool. It's cool, Sean. So, I yeah, I did want to mention in terms of the writers – Maybe this is not the right time to mention it, but I'll bring it up anyway. So we get Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who are hired for The World Is Not Enough. And then they write Die Another Day. (laughs) And we remarked upon this in both Die Another Day and Casino Royale in the podcasts about how much of a switch that was from the, the, you know, the low point, arguably, of Die Another Day to this incredible high point of Casino Royale. Mm. And Paul Haggis comes in with Casino Royale, so they've got another writer. And then Quantum of Solace is like, uh, and then they come back for Skyfall and they've got another writer. And so I'm wondering, is it a case that they're just not that good, actually, <laughs> those two? <laughs> and, and maybe... When Craig leaves as Bond, maybe they should depart and, and maybe what the series needs there is some fresh eyes for, from yeah, a writer. Yeah, possibly. I think they're definitely, they're definitely only as good as the other writer who comes in to punch up their script. <laughs> um, that, that seems to be how it works because it seems like they do the first pass and then someone else will come along and fix whatever they've done that that seems to be how it works and how the writing process works like they they seem to have a good understanding of the basics so that they they know all the bits and they need someone else to come in and and hook them all up and if the the person who's rewriting them doesn't hook them up properly then the movie doesn't work yeah and the other thing i thought is is casino royale such a high point because it's actually a fleming novel it's based on an original story written 40 years prior. Well, I'm sure that, that helped. I'm, I'm sure it helped to have like an actual story to sort of be pulling from. Yeah, and to flesh out. So the the, the bones are there and then they just modernise and update and have a lot of fun with the, you know, the refreshing of it. But as we found out last week on the Casino Royale podcast, because we're all slack and haven't actually read the book, but the whole Bond being tortured, you know, by the nuts is in the book. Yeah. That's not a new thing. That's an old thing that's been brought back in to actually see Bond suffering. That's a Fleming thing. That's not necessarily a Purvis and Wade thing. So, you know, these are probably insights that a better Bond podcaster than I would have already made. But, you know, I got there. And that's what's important. Well, don't forget. You know what? Writing is hard. Writing yes. really is hard. That's true. You know, if you sit down with a blank sheet of paper and say six months from now I'm going to have the best James Bond script anyone's ever seen, well, 
best of luck to you because yes. that is a tall order. And that's the thing. I don't want to say any of this from a point of view of like, you know, you're terrible because the, the weight of expectations, the money at play, I am totally um, sympathetic to all of those things. It's it's just I'm just interested in trying to understand, like, what are some of the things that pulling out of, of these scripts is how they're being written, the source material for them, the way that they're written, the way that they're then rewritten or punched up. That's kind of really fascinating to me in the Daniel Craig era. Also, seven films, is it, that they've written now? That's a lot. And I I think they could be forgiven for being out of ideas at this point. (laughs) Yes. Which is why I'm really interested in No Time to Die, because, of course, one of the people who came in to help punch it up was the amazing Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Emmy Award-winning writer. (laughs) So, you know, if anyone's got the chops to do it, she absolutely does. So I think that's why I'm really encouraged by that for No Time to Die. So what else did I have written down? I had written down the the Tosca opera as well. Dominic Green as a villain, the director didn't want it. He apparently wanted to have some makeup or have some physical change in his character, but the director wanted him to be quote unquote normal because he wanted to show that people in quantum are just ordinary people they're just hidden in plain sight they're not crazy weird kooky horribly disfigured insane villains they're ordinary everyday villains who you'd pass on the street and pat and their to, dog. That, to that i would say why are you making a bond film <laughs> <laughs> and this is really interesting because really the only characteristic they give him is kind of he wears a lot of sort of loose linen clothing And that's really the only distinguishing character. He's got very kind of quite large brown eyes, quite sort of piercing, but he doesn't – he's kind of bland, I think. Is that – or just a little bit weak, a little bit floppy? I think floppy. I think loose and floppy is is kind of – Kind of of forgettable, weirdly. Like, he's he's not – bad like and i don't hate him but by the same token it's like if you asked me to name my top 10 bond villains i wouldn't even like it wouldn't even occur to me to put him in there yeah well i mean certainly because you hadn't seen the film before now Stu. well that's that's, true that's (laughs) one of the main reasons but having now seen the film it's probably only shifted your awareness of him just slightly (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly in a few weeks he will pass from all from my memory and bond kills him in a really interesting way um or disposes of him in a really interesting way it's very sadistic, isn't it? It's and really sadistic. One wonders what the hell Green's done to Bond at this point. That's right. Because it's, it's never seemed personal between them. I was going to say Green is not specifically responsible for Vesper's death. You know, certainly he's part of Quantum and you know that whole thing. But he's not really tied directly to the Vesper operation against Bond. The reason why he's the bad guy is because he's trying to monopolize the water and use it to cause coups in Bolivia and to to get control of water supply to make money for quantum. So it's essentially just a blackmail scheme, really, just on a, you know, catastrophic human scale. But almost as if this would be better being a completely separate film. Yeah. Than trying to be a sequel to Casino Royale. (laughs) Oh, oh, I see that. Oh, that was the joke. (laughs) I was so into my train of thought. I was like, yeah, Tom makes a really good... Oh, I see. That's the... Yeah, that's the... Okay. See? Even I have lost my ability to see the humour because of this film. Somebody said recently, at any one time, about 15% of Twitter is just people saying to each other, yes, that's the joke. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely true that humour and jokes... I don't know if it's just that they don't translate super well or just people don't have senses of humour. 
and don't both. okay all right yeah that's fair that's that's totally both, fair. both those things are true <laughs> i also wanted to bring up i mean i'd like to talk about the fact that this is a film a sort of a mediation on revenge and what that does to a person because you mm. have m talking to bond about how you're making this personal or i can't i can't trust you if you're just going to go off and seek revenge for what happened thought- to Vespa. I thought it was fascinating because there was there's a clear parallel between this movie and For Your Eyes Only, where Bond runs into a, a young woman who is out for revenge against the people who killed her father. And in, in For Your Eyes Only, Bond makes the point that when you start on your road to revenge, you have to dig two graves. Yes. Uh, and in this one, he's like, no, do you, want to, do you want to kill the guy? I'll help you. Let's go do it. Let's go murder the motherfucker. <laughs> yes. Um, like, like, he seems to have done a complete 180. <laughs> And whether and whether canonically this is before, set before or after for your eyes only, who knows? But it's interesting to see in the intervening years Bond's uh, attitude switch to uh, violent revenge. Yeah. But in for your eyes only, we see Melina Havelock's parents get murdered. We know yeah. who did it, we know why they did it, and we know why she wants revenge. But yeah. we have to pick up the pieces of Camille's relationship with Green in that snatched conversation, which very weirdly she has out of Bond's earshot. So Hmm. we know stuff about who she is and what she wants that Bond doesn't know for no very good reason that I can tell. But we're plunged right into the middle of that story and I'm playing catch up all the way through this frantically paced film. Yes, and and she only kind of really comes clean to Bond when they're in the sinkhole and she explains... (laughs) (laughs) And she explains... That is a very very old joke, Stuart. Expertly (laughs) deployed by you. (laughs) They need to be calling you up. I docked my cap, sir. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so she decides to tell she's all tired after you know plummeting the ground to the ground <laughs> after falling out of the plane and is cold and bond gives her, her his jacket and then she proceeds to tell him about how her family her father was a really bad man really bad worked for a military junta really bad guy but still he was my father <laughs> and how the general morano uh, Modano, marino morano Let's call the whole thing off. Um, he's the guy who tortured them and killed the family, set the house on fire, and she escaped because she was young. And, yeah, so that's the backstory. So she kind of fills in with this tragic tale of woe, and then they walk out of the sinkhole. <laughs> Which, again, so the, the, the end of the movie is all about the fact that somebody who is stuck out in the desert will attempt to walk to freedom and will be so desperate that he'll consider drinking oil in order to survive, but not 15 minutes earlier, Bond and Camille just walked out of the desert and everything was fine. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, and they didn't even seem to stop for a drink when they discovered the huge underwater reservoir that's full. Meanwhile, the villagers are scrabbling for droplets from an empty, you know, well. Uh, They don't even stop and have a drink. Like, they're literally looking at this massive reservoir and don't even think, hey, we just fell out of a plane. And we've got to walk through the desert. Do you want to just load up? Just... Well, not only that, there's the added <laughs> complication because M says that Green was found with, with motor oil in his in his stomach, but like two bullets in the back of his skull. Yeah, so they've sent people out to... So so Quantum, or, or you know, well, I guess we now know Spectre, has sent people after him to make him pay for his failure, but I guess they waited for him to start drinking motor oil? <laughs> well, they had to scramble the people. They had to get a car, <laughs> get passports. It, all sorts of things uh, could delay their... <laughs> I also wanted to talk about why does Camille need to be Bolivian special forces or special intelligence? 
Bond sort of drops that on her when they're in the plane. He says, my sources tell me you're Bolivian intelligence or used to be. But that's not really relevant. I guess it means that she can hold her own, like yes. like that he doesn't have to worry about it. But Melina Havelock, as we just said, she wasn't special forces and she was going after Christados with a gun. Yeah, but, I mean, it sh- it sh- I mean they go out of their way to, to show that she is, like, capable. And I guess they could have done the same here, but they just shortcut it by saying, yeah, special forces, she probably had, like, fight training and stuff. She knows, yeah. she knows how to shoot and fight, and it's fine. But then he says to her, you know, have you ever killed anyone? And apparently she hasn't. What 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 kind of yeah, special forces are you? Have I you ever know. killed someone? I don't know. You're she asking questions crazy. the movie does not answer, Natalie. She looks at least 27, <laughs> 28 years old. Why hasn't she killed a few people by now? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, so he then tells her, you know, your training's going to make you want to pull the trigger, but then because it's a personal kill, your instincts will tell you not to. So you'll need to, you know, take a breath and make the sh- have one shot and make it count. So then later on, after she's able to kill that general, oh, and quick aside, Stu, did you spot Talisa? Oh, yes, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, God, her name is escaped. Una Chapman, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I did, I did, yeah. I was like, Chaplin. oh, it's her, great. She's Charlie Chaplin's great-granddaughter, I believe. Yeah. I was like looking at her going, you're someone. I know that face. I know that <laughs> face. And then I was watching the credits roll and was like, ah, it's Talisa. So that, add that to the list of Game of Thrones people who've been in Bond films. I really do need to do a master list of that. So he is, you know, a obviously horrible man who just wants to rape beautiful young women. And so he's attempting to assault her when Camille comes in and starts fighting with him and, and uh, she gets away and then has this massive fight with, with the general. And then she kills him and then she's all upset. Meanwhile, Bond has been fighting with Dominic Green, who's just like, wah, he kind of gets an axe out of the fire hydrant thing and just goes <laughs> after Bond with an axe. Great. Bond saves him when he could just drop him into a fire, but he saves him and then runs after Camille after there's a shot and she kills the general that yeah, doesn't I don't, know I don't him. get why that was a, a dilemma for Bond. It's like just drop him into the raging inferno and then go and yeah. rescue the girl, dude. Yeah, so they have to let him go so they can have this really sadistic death that doesn't really need to happen. <laughs> anyway, my main point is Bond goes in there and they're kind of surrounded by fire and she's panicked and in a sort of, I guess, a frozen kind of um, fear response. And, you know, the fire is bearing down on them. And then he gets out his gun and she said, like whispers like, take one shot, make it count. And he's holding the gun kind of almost to her head is mm. it like, is he going to shoot them both? Is that what yeah, he's absolutely. He's going to he's going to shoot her and then himself. Or shoot them with the boat with the same bullet, like put the heads together, and that's the vibe I got. And I went, Bond has never exhibited any. Okay, well it's time to go. I mean, for all its faults and die another day, he survived 14 months of torture for God's sake, without <laughs> you know. But they are. I mean, like the the, the conceit of the movie is that they they are facing like imminent death by burning alive, and, and that's. <laughs> I'm sorry, Stu. This is James freaking hey. Bond. How many times has he faced imminent death? He's been in space for God's don't, sake. Don't shoot the messenger here, Natalie. I'm right there with you. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm just saying that when has Bond ever gone? Well, you know what? There's a bit of a fire here. I might just I, let's take us all out. And then the wall just falls down, and they walk out of the second story. Well, no, no, no. He he he, uh, he, he does shoot the gun and blow up. I think it's like yeah. oxygen canister or something. As uh, soon as he the, sees so a way out, he takes way. it. So maybe it was just maybe it was just jokes. Maybe it was just lols. <laughs> uh, and he was just he was just teasing Camille. <laughs> right. Because he had a plan all along. <laughs> he's, such, he's such a prankster. Well, we know we know this Bond has more of a sardonic sense of humour. Maybe that's how it shows. <laughs> It's a dry wit. <laughs> it's like the desert itself. Um, it's dry as his martinis. It's parched. 
um, oh yeah, what was with that scene on the airplane with Mathis? What's what's okay? I've got another point to I, make can, about that. Can I just say, I, I I actually loved that scene. I loved it quite a great deal. I'm not saying it was. I'm not saying it was wrong. I was just saying. So Bond can't sleep, and yet he somehow has the mental resources and physical resources to do all of that fighting, and he's not a. Li- I, I, I can I can barely get up in the morning, and I'm not doing anything. I'm barely going to the according gym. To, according to Andrew Ellard, there's a hint that Bond hasn't slept since the end of Casino Royale and doesn't yeah. sleep through this whole movie. Well, no, and he's insane. The only time, <laughs> the only time that I could think that he gets some shut eye is when M organizes for him to also get a charter flight out of Haiti to Austria to the uh, opera concert. I feel like that's got to be a good what ten. 12-hour flight. He could have got some mm. shut-eye then. Get some shut-eye there. I do love the idea, because the thing is, like, we know that James Bond is human wreckage. Like, like he is a a deeply, deeply broken man. And I <laughs> love, I just love the idea of him completely wired after several days of adventures, just downing <laughs> martini after martini, <laughs> trying to make the voices stop. Like, <laughs> martini, just, Benzedrine, Benzedrine, yeah, Martini. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, it felt very in character in a very charming way. I liked it a lot. I liked that scene quite a great deal. No, it was it was good fun. But I do want to make a point about Mathis. So at the end of Casino Royale, when, when he's recovering after being, you know, walloped in the bollocks, he thinks Mathis is dirty. He thinks he's in league with Le Chiffre. Well, that's what Le Chiffre told him anyway. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. so has Mathis arrested, but then it turns out Vesper was the one who betrayed him. And Mathis at some point has been cleared. Well, I was going to talk about this. When does this happen? When, when does he happen? get cleared and gets moved to a villa? Exactly. If this is yeah. a- it's, been two, it's been two years since Casino Royale came out. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's like so. Mathis got cleared. Like it's the danger of making this an immediate sequel to Casino Royale because it picks up immediately after the last movie left off. Admittedly, there could be a small gap between the the end of the film and that last scene in the film where he goes after Mr. White initially. There could be like several months gap there. Yes, yes that's for sure. And there, there was time after he got a um, he gets arrested at the recovery facility, and then Bond and Vesper go sailing around the world. So maybe there's a month or two in there where he gets cleared, but. It's, is it even stated that he's cleared in Casino Royale? I can't remember. Oh, no, it's not. No, no, no. They, they, no, no, they drop that. It's a retcon. Yeah, it's a retcon. So he then is given a beautiful villa. Why does it have to be a villa? Why does it have to be that? I know it's a Bond film, so of course it has to be beautiful. But, like, why couldn't it just be like, oh, we've got you a nice flat in downtown? <laughs> why do you need to be in this beautiful location on the – anyway – and then he dies. He's betrayed by the police Listen, chief. I, I don't know if you've seen House Prices in London. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> so a villa, you're saying that a, a shitty one-bedroom flat in London on the outskirts is, is, is probably, is probably half what that villa cost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then he he's betrayed by the police chief in La Paz, I think. Yeah, in Bolivia, and put in the back of Bond's truck, and then they're trying to set it up so that you know Bond shoots him or whatever. And there's a fight and then he's shot, Mathis is shot, and he dies in Bond's arms. Or he's Bond's holding, he's saying, don't leave me, hold me. And Bond sort of holds him tenderly and then says, is Mathis your cover name? And he says, yes. Is that like an admission that he was guilty? I'm just left really confused about Mathis's allegiances. I I feel like the film didn't make that particularly clear. 
But again, it could just be me. I'm sure Andrew Ellard will have videos at some point. (laughs) I just didn't understand. The the one thing I don't like about, I I, I think uh, the Mathis character is great. I think there is a genuine relationship there. I don't know what those last words mean. Uh, It's it's not Mm. at all clear. But I do get the emotional arc of that relationship in a way that I don't really with any other characters in this film. And that's why I'm I'm kind of inclined to to stick up for that uh, whole section because... It feels like it means something. It feels like there's something going on there in a way that just it's so hard to find elsewhere. Do you know what I just realised they might be referring to? What's that? Is the James Bond codename theory. No, God, no, please no. Like, like it just occurred to me that they might be making a sly reference to like, oh, his name's Mathis. Oh, is Mathis your codename? He goes, yes. Implying that MI6 agents all adopt code names, like even from each other, and implying yeah. that, like, you know, James Bond is a code name. I, I hate, I hate that that's where my mind went because, as I've stated before, I hate that theory. <laughs> uh, but, you know, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do agree with you, Tom. I think it's a lovely relationship that he develops with Mathis. And, you know, that scene on the plane, as you say, Stu, is is really, really good. And it's a, a, a lovely, intimate scene between mm. two men in this line of business that, can destroy you so i've got no beef with that and, and i certainly it, it i'd forgotten that that's how he dies and i was sad to see him go and it was a shock to see him again in the, the back particularly because bond says when he says open the trunk bond goes now why would you want me to do that like he has this processing moment and then it's mathers and i think he's quite shocked as well a lot of but, people in car boots in this film yes so many car boots doesn't he stuff um green in the, back of it in the boot as well yeah, and Mr. Mr. White, White and Mathis and then Green. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a hat trick of boot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly, if you're in a Bond film, get a really small car. Get the car like Camille um, <laughs> Drives, which was an actual car. You know, those Ford cars, the KAs that yeah. were popular for a while. <laughs> she drives one of those. There's a nice callback, actually, the first time she picks him up. Yeah. In Haiti, she she says get in, uh, and then the second time she pulls up to to after he leaves M, and she's like get in. So there was a nice callback to that driving around in a small car, but that's about the most that their relationship kind of gets, I suppose, in terms of humour. Yeah, and then it culminates in a weird, awkward car kiss. Car kiss, <laughs> and he drops her off outside a cemetery for some reason. Yeah. I couldn't remember. It's like, is she going to go visit the graves of her family? Is that the whole point of that? I don't know. Oh, I, I did want to make a few points about some things I did have written down before. So this is the last film from Peter Lamont, who is a name that you will have seen in the opening credits for many Bond films. He started as an uncredited draftsman, I think, on Goldfinger and Thunderball. Sorry, Stu, to bring that up. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you, you – you probably wouldn't know this, Tom, but uh, Stu finally found a film that was worse than Thunderball for him, and that was Die Another Day. So It was, it was a big, Die Another ah, Day. Yeah, it was a big moment. Yeah, so shorter, Peter Lam- Shorter. Die Another it, Day. It is shorter. That, that, that's the one thing it has going for it. <laughs> By a significant margin, as you well know. <laughs> So four and a half weeks. Uh, but now, I think um, Casino Royale is Peter Lamont's last film. I think it's, Dennis Gastner is the production designer on this one. Sorry, that's yes, that's what I meant to say. He retired after Casino Royale, so this yeah. is the first film without him. And so they bring in Dennis Gastner to create all these cool buildings, I suppose, like the Eco Hotel at the end. It's sort of supposed to be modern and that postmodern modernism kind of thing, and it's certainly very cool. And But they were saying it was going to be a touch of like the old Ken Adam Lairs, villains' lairs, and it didn't 
didn't feel like that to me. No, it came across as like a as a convention center. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. But I wanted to mention Peter Lamont because what I didn't realize is he won his Oscar. Um, he was nominated three times for Fiddler on the Roof, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Aliens. Didn't win, but then he won in 1997 for Titanic. I had no idea. He did the production design on Titanic. And also, he was passenger on a flight in 1982 that was uh, hijacked by a lone Sikh militant, and Indian security forces killed the hijacker and rescued all passengers, including Lamont. So there you go. That's a that's a Bond set designer survived a plane hack hijacking. I also wanted to mention that there's yeah there's just a few changes in terms of some of the production staff here. They replaced some of the costuming people, including if you'll remember. Pierce Brosnan's suits and also Daniel Craig's suit in Casino Royale were all tailored by Briony, the brand. I think it's pronounced Briony. This film, they decided that they were too relaxed and that Bond needed sharper suits. And so they hired Tom Ford. And so the Craig look is now very much embedded with the Tom Ford kind of look where the shoot, the suits are more closely fitted to the body. They show more of the shape. Closely uh, fitted. They're painted on him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the opening title scene is done by a group called MK12. So I assume that's a company. But they had been done since GoldenEye by Daniel Kleinman, who did all of them, including Casino Royale. And we talked about the amazing credit, credit sequence for... Uh, Casino Royale, but then this mm. time I was watching it going, I feel this is slightly different. The style of it is slightly different. And, yeah, it's a whole different group. The other thing... I do not like these titles at you all. Don't? I don't like the titles. I don't like the song. I don't like <laughs> the type in the titles. I don't like anything about it. Yeah. Like they Plyman, all is forgiven. Yes, I, I really like Climbing. That's the thing. I was like, why did they change it? And it's it moves very fast. And it's I like the sand motif because they're obviously desert. But, yeah, I wanted to talk about the song too because initially it was going to be Amy Winehouse I was reading and Mark Ronson, the, the, the producer, they had recorded a demo. But then apparently because of Amy Winehouse's sort of issues, she was not in a condition to record. Which is sad because she has an incredible voice for a Bond It would song. have been so good, I think, like her, her voice. And I, I don't know, Another Way to Die, I definitely didn't like it on first hearing. It's kind of grown on me a little. I wish it wasn't a duet. I like the riff, the da na na I think it would have been fine if Jack White had have put aside his ego and just not sung. Yeah, I think Alicia Keys kind of knocking it out of, you know, knocking out yeah. the vocals would have been a better choice but mm. tom what are your thoughts on the song i don't like it at all it doesn't do anything <laughs> for me yeah uh, it doesn't seem to have any connection to bond songs of the past and it doesn't seem to me to be a, a bold move in a new direction it's not my kind of thing well i was re-listening to skyfall and it, it's a it's a lovely adele song but it's not as soaring as i thought it was for some reason i was sort of listening to it by comparison it's it's still quite, um, I don't know, it's not Shirley Bassey, which is a silly thing to say because, of course, no one's Shirley Bassey. But it, I don't know, it just it sounds like it should go to another place that it doesn't go to. But maybe I'll change my mind next week when we get to Skype. <laughs> um, so I think those were the production things that I wanted to mention. Also, in terms of box office, I thought it was worth just bringing up the box office numbers. Yeah, um, this which, is a hell of a year for film. Yeah, it still made in worldwide box offices, and it did break a couple of records 
certainly in the UK, on its release. The film broke the UK opening weekend record, taking £15.5 million in its first weekend, surpassing the previous record of £14.9 held by Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Yeah, so it did do really well, but then Casino Royale had made like 600 and something million. So it was definitely down on Casino Royale. But still huge numbers. Absolutely. So. But, of course, that, that's that's a, the year when uh, a little film called The Dark Knight made nearly a <laughs> billion dollars. Yeah, wow. $997 million. I wonder if Christopher like, Nolan was... could direct a Bond film. Yeah, I'm sure he wants I mean, to. <laughs> he wants to, yeah, yeah. The whole snow section of Inception, it was his attempt to recreate, well, yeah. specifically on a Majesty's Secret Service. Yes, that's Nick Wiggins talked about that when we did that. I mean, I mean, large sections of The Dark Knight are basically a Bond film. And look, if they get Tom Hardy, as has, has been rumoured. What, what are your thoughts <laughs> on Bond, Bond casting? Do you think Tom Hardy would be a good one, Tom? It's funny, there isn't a bond in waiting the way there was with certainly with, with Moore and Brosnan and sort of with Daniel Craig because anyone who saw Layer Cake would have just gone immediately, oh, well, this guy can be James Bond. Mm. Henry Cavill's probably the one who looks and sounds most like Bond. Tom Hardy, I think, would be a, a continuation of what Daniel Craig is, the blunt instrument. Yes. Uh, he's not quite as good looking and he's uh, a tiny bit shorter even than Craig, who is yes. the shortest Bond to date. And those yes. are both marks against him. He's a very good actor. Oh, this uh, is the it's, thing. It's a, it's a tough pass. I he's think, probably a better actor than Henry Cavill. Yeah, I think Tom Hardy's a great actor, but I think he's too... And this is the problem with Henry Cavill too. Like, Henry Cavill is Superman. Like, he's He's, he's literally he, Superman. He, he's literally Superman. And is that too famous a role to have and then also be James Bond? Like, is that kind of being a bit greedy? A bit greedy, <laughs> Henry? No, Roger Moore um, was the saint. That's true. And also Henry Cavill seems to be a bit nerdy and a bit like of a geek. <laughs> and I, I kind of would love that for James Bond to be played by a geek at heart. I think that would be that would be really sweet. And I think he's certainly the right age and height and looks and all of that. But I just worry that he might be too famous. Tom Hardy, I think I kind of don't want them to do another Craig. That's mm. my thing against Tom Hardy because I think you're right, Tom. I think he he would be more of that really. I just and also I just Bane just always comes to my mind, <laughs> and I, that's wrong. I shouldn't judge him just by that one character. But the one I've been looking at recently is James Norton, who's an English oh, yes. actor who's in Grantchester, which is like a he's a priest who solves murder. I've never watched it, but he was also in Happy Valley, which is a really good series. He's terrific in that. Terrifying, and which again would be. A terrifying. weird, a weird mix. Yeah, but then I've seen him uh, in other things where he's quite charming. Yeah, left field pitch. What do you think about if he could manage the accent, Army Hammer? Okay, so this got brought up because he did that Man from Uncle film with Henry Cavill, and I think it came yeah. up because it's like could either of them? I have like Arnie Hammer specific face blindness. <laughs> if you asked me to pick him out of a lineup, I could not do it. Like I. As soon as he's not on screen in anything I'm watching, I forget what he looks like. Yeah, he's a big he's, hunk of white bread. A, that is a problem. He's really bland. I don't. I just haven't. I probably haven't seen enough of his stuff to know if he's a great actor. I'm sure he's perfectly fine, but yeah, I just don't see Bond because I guess I don't remember his face. <laughs> it's a very specific case of face blindness. Yeah, I keep trying to think of other options, but I'm sure it'll probably be someone that. We don't expect. Well, as I said, I think I think they missed the boat on Tom Hiddleston. I think a couple of years ago he would have been a brilliant choice to, to take it forward. He has a, a totally different physicality to Craig, but I think he could really embody that sort of sadistic 
nature that is sort of lurking under the heart of Bond. He wouldn't be beefcake, that's for sure. He'd no, no, but he could be lean, very he could yeah, be lean, life and lean, and yeah, and, yeah. sinewy. And he could definitely of. he could get the charm, but he could also get the menace under the charm as well. Like I yes. think he's proven that he can do that. But I think the ship has probably sailed on that now. Why is that? Well, just just he's older. He, he's doing other things. I think he's probably. <laughs> He's taken up craft. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I think he's probably a little bit old, although I, I don't know how old he is, actually. He's 39. 77, and he's 43. Yeah. yeah. So okay, well, he's younger than Tom Hardy, so go for it. Henry Cavill is 37, I believe. Yeah. And I feel like that's the right age um, for a Bond to be starting, because, you know, you, you're going to be doing yeah. probably at least three films. So that's why I sort of think Idris Elba has probably aged out of it, and Tom Hardy would be getting there as well. But then, as we say, as we keep saying, look at Halle Berry. She looks younger now than she did in Die Another Day. <laughs> Hollywood actors just seem to age in reverse. So 50 years old is not what it used to be. Sometimes Chris Hemsworth's name gets brought up in connection with Bond. And no, I'm that's not, ridiculous. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, he's, he's a famous jacked a- action star. But he's like a blonde Australian surfer dude. No, exactly. I, I totally agree. I think he's <laughs> the totally wrong vibe. Like, I think he's a great actor, a surprisingly good actor. Yeah, but I think he's I fabulous. Think he's, he's actually... He's charismatic as all hell. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a movie star, but he's actually a very, very good actor. Like, like he's really... And he's gotten better visibly over the course of, of several years, but I don't think he's Bond. No, I, I don't either. I think he's... I think he's... Um, put him in a spy role or something. Didn't they put him in Men in Black? Yeah, in today. Oh, like God, yeah, that, yeah I forgot that movie exists. I never saw it because I went, why would they do that? That is a movie um, that instantly disappeared from the pop cultural consciousness yeah. never to be seen again. And someone then suggested to me Benedict Cumberbatch himself, and I was like, I don't get that from him. Yeah, I don't get that either. He's a great actor, and he could do – I'm sure he could do the acting part, but I don't – I don't know. I don't get Bond from him so much. Mm. He's certainly probably tall enough, but – Tom, you might you might have some insight that we don't. I mean, like in terms of like you're you're more au fait with like up and coming British actors. Is there anyone sort of getting a bit of buzz in Britain? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, some papers were running with the story that Tom Hardy had been cast. Yeah, yeah, that came out. Uh, And Bookie stopped taking money, but they're not going to announce who they've seen until (gasps) after No Time to Die has left cinemas, apart from anything else. So no, there's there's no one else that that I'm aware of. All the same names keep coming up and, and have done since before Craig announced he was doing a fifth film. Yeah, I've been talking about, you know, the the Game of Thrones sort of connection, whether there could be somewhere there. But I've just looked up. I've literally just Googled British actors under 40. And for some reason, there's a picture of, <laughs> for some reason, there's a picture of Jude Law. And that's totally not happening. Um, <laughs> Nicholas Holt. Yes, oh, yeah. I've heard his name come up before as well. He, oh, was, he was very young. He's very young. Yeah, he's only about 30 or 31. So he'd be a young Bond. He but younger. He's, yeah, he's definitely kind of baby faced, but he's excellent um, in the series The Great, um, yeah. which is about Catherine the Great, and it, you know, incredibly, incredibly not historically true, but <laughs> he's he's fantastic. He is. It's a it's a real Game of Thrones kind of Jamie Lannister turn where you just start off hating him, and then as the series goes on, you're like. I love him now. I, ju- I don't want anything bad to happen to him ever. And he's a monster. And you're just going, wow, I'm really, really attracted to the wrong kind of people. Um, well, I mean, listen, we know Peter Dinklage can do the accent. <laughs> That's true. Hey, hey that would be so, left field. Can he? Carefully can chosen he? camera angles. You know what? I mean, I don't want to say anything now because I feel like I'm going <laughs> to say the wrong thing. You're stepping into a trap, Natalie. 
What about Robert Pattinson, who's now the Batman? He kind of has a bit of a, you know, square-jawed, again, on the younger side. but More of a pointy jaw. And uh, Jamie Dornan is another one who I think I've heard his name come up. Yeah, yeah. He was in Fifty Shades of Grey, though, so I feel like that kind of should count against you. <laughs> so anyway, there are some thoughts from me. And, of course, you know, they might go with a person of colour. Like, I've always kind of felt that Bond is a white guy because I just feel like everything Bond represents is kind of white guy. I used to be kind of like I don't feel like it's appropriate for a, a, a black guy or a man of colour to be Bond. Having said that, I'm softening on that because I've read Barbara Broccoli say that she would think that, even though I read an interview with Yafet Koto, who of course played Kananga in Live and Let Die, mm-hmm. that he he said black people shouldn't be James Bond. This is a white guy. Like, you know, we should have heroes of colour who are not, you know, just a repurposed white guy. And I was like, I kind of sympathise with that view that I really don't mean to sound inappropriate, but I I don't know how to express myself well. It's like, why would you want to take on this history and baggage of a character who is so representative of a particular kind of Britain uh, or a particular ideal of Britain, which is has its own problems and its own cons and pros, and and sort of put that, I don't know, I don't, but of course everyone's British, so I don't, I'm, I'm getting myself into a sinkhole right now. I've, I've, I'm trying to deploy the parachute six feet yeah. above the ground. But I, I, <laughs> Having seen people like Sasha Dewan and oh, who's the other great actor that I was thinking of? Could be Bond. I've mental blank. But, you know, there are definitely actors of colour out there as well. So the ones that I've been mentioning are just, you know, the white guys. There's certainly definitely the talent out there. I guess it's the do you just say this is James Bond and ignore skin colour or do you reference it? Is it, again, it, yeah. It's the same just, problem that Doctor Who's had with casting Jodie Whittaker, who's a very good actor but they're now having to kind of confront the fact that she looks female. And so when she goes back into the past, she's treated differently. And it all just feels a bit reductive. It mm. all just feels a bit like Doctor Who in the 1970s with Sarah Jane Smith talking enthusiastically about women's lib, because what the series is trying to say is we should be past this now, but what the script is saying is we absolutely aren't. Yes. And I think yes. the same thing would happen. But I think the other thing I'd say is very often when you cast the right actor, all of these problems just disappear. Yeah, you cast a certain actor and... Something about their energy, their individual personality and charisma inspires the people who are writing, inspires the other maybe regular members of the cast, and some alchemy happens which you can't predict. And that's, I think, what happened with Daniel Craig, who a lot of people were very uh, sceptical about when his casting Mm. was first announced. He's too short, he's too blonde, he's not good-looking enough, and Mm. it just worked. And so, I mean, off the top of my head, the person who springs to mind for me is Henry Golding, who you might remember from Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. Uh, who's got a kind of swagger to him. Yeah. And it's just possible that if someone like he was to be cast, the fact that he doesn't look like the stereotypical white British man from the 1950s would be less of an issue because yes. there'd be something about him specifically. But it's very hard to predict that kind of thing. And it's it really until, until the movie's in the can, or at least until you're getting dailies, I think it's very difficult to know what you've got. Yeah, I could go with that casting because he's got like a Lee Shang from Mulan vibe. I don't mean to that to sound like an insult. <laughs> Lee Shang from Mulan is probably my favourite Disney prince, if that's the right word for it, because he's like hot AF. I'm just saying. I'm just saying he's got his shirt off most of the time. Really starts to explain a lot of things about me when I think about these things all <laughs> in big context. But you know yeah, he does his singing voice in the animated movie. Yes, I, I, I do actually, yeah. <laughs> Is it going to be, hang on, let me try to guess. Is it going to be someone like at, totally out there like an Elton John or a, or a Mick Jagger? Or, no, although it's probably not too far off. Who uh, is the it? singing voice uh, of Lee Shang in the Mulan animated Disney movie is Donny Osmond. <laughs> what? 
true story. Yeah. Wow. He, he's like the whitest white guy. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, back in the dim and distant days of 1998, that was absolutely fine. Yeah. I mean, the thing about voice acting is, I've, I've, I, I do understand the principle behind, you know, people of color playing people of color. But when, um, so you know, in terms of Li Shang, but mystical characters and all that sort of stuff, like voice actors are voice actors. Like that's what they do professional voice actors do different voices so but yeah i guess now you just have a certain range that suit i don't know I, again sinkhole i'm <laughs> i'm plummeting into a sinkhole i'm trying to pull a parachute I, ju- I just find these things really interesting well listen can i, I give you an air mattress of more plot grumbles because one other thing about, <laughs> one other thing about uh, m and bond's arc which i didn't quite get to uh, and I'd hate to finish this podcast without uh, getting it out. So we talked about this weird thing that M keeps giving him a ticking off for murdering suspects. But her analysis is that uh, he's so overcome with grief and inconsolable rage that he's on this this murderous rampage of revenge. And there is no evidence for this. He is only ever killing people who are trying to kill him. And yes, it would yes. be better if he brought them back alive for questioning. But he he is never, ever given a choice. But then, then he doesn't the film, say that. He could just say, no, M, exactly. he attacked me yeah. with a knife. I had to yeah. kill him. He just goes, it was a dead end. I don't focus on the past. At the end of the film, he saves Dominic Green's life with the presumably specific intention of giving him the nastiest, slowest, most horrible death imaginable. And that's fine because he then goes, finds Vesper's boyfriend, who we're supposed to remember from the previous film, but I don't think he ever actually appeared on screen. And doesn't shoot him through the head because he is in no way, shape or form uh, an immediate threat. Uh, And that's supposed to be him being rehabilitated. Now, none of this makes any sense at all as character growth. Mm. If he'd shot Yusuf through the head at the beginning of the film, and then save Dominic Green's life at the end so he could be brought in for questioning. This man who has infiltrated MI6 to the highest level, who presumably has information they badly need, that would make sense. <laughs> this makes no sense whatsoever. M also has a scene with Tim Pickett-Smith, who I love, who's who's uh, departed us now, but he's a great English character actor. And uh, That's he's... a sort of dry run for Rafe Fiennes in Skyfall, isn't it? Yes, yes, that's right. Just uh, getting everybody used to having men back in charge. Um, <laughs> you know, it's the 2010s now, people. We need a man back in charge. But she has a conversation with him, and, and Tim Pickett-Smith I love because he sort of plays kindly old father figures and intensely terrifying dictatorial authoritative figures in different things you know he plays both of those roles like super well and uh, anyway in this one he's kind of a combination of both he's like the authoritative defense minister but he's not evil he's just pragmatic mm. but M is in a right panic about we need to find out about this organization and he's sort of telling her well no we're doing business with Dominic Green now because we need oil because we're Britain and we're stuffed without it so <laughs> We're just going to make some compromises. Uh, get used to it. The next decade is going to be a bit of a roller coaster on that front. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> get used to making compromises that you weren't expecting to. But yes, M is, they sort of expand her role, don't they? But it don't quite connect all the dots to make it cohesive. She definitely feels and as I say, bit. this is what happens. Writing films is difficult. It's mm. a, a lot of a lot of words, a lot of moving pieces, and it's really, really easy to get stuck making small fixes here and there 
either when you're writing the script or on the set or sometimes even in the edit, fix this bit up to make it work, fix this bit up to make it work. And you lose track of how those bits were meant to fit together. And when you have one voice that can take control of that and steer you all the way through, things become much easier. And when you are in the middle of a writer's strike, moving towards an immovable release date, things are very much harder. Mm. So I've got to say, I, I don't actually find this movie as frustrating or as disappointing as some of those really dreadful ones from the 70s. Uh, I would <laughs> probably rather watch Quantum of Solace than Diamonds of Forever or Man with the Golden Gun mm. because they're just nonsense. And it does have... <laughs> flashes of sophistication and uh, yeah it's probably craig's worst performance but craig's worst performance is significantly better than say roger moore or even sean connery's worst performance yeah. uh, connery at his best is of course unbeatable but connery in diamonds of forever looks like he'd rather be anywhere else than where he is <laughs> i still maintain the conspiracy theory that they're doing something to his eyes like his eyes cannot be that blue like that's inhumanly possible uh, maybe a little bit of digital grading uh, yeah knows? just to make them pop you know he's just the piercing Coming in, especially coming in between Skyfall and Casino Royale, this is such a disappointment. Mm. Uh, Skyfall has its detractors, and I think it's fair to say that the that was my plan all along bit becomes increasingly hard to take as the movie goes on. (laughs) But there's just a kind of energy and clarity to Skyfall. Yeah. which seems to have got everyone involved really determined to give it their best. And Casino Royale is such an achievement after the cul-de-sac that the franchise had backed itself into by the end of Die Another Day. <laughs> uh, so this is just kind of the, the awkward one in the middle when no one was really paying attention. And yeah. a lot of the stuff that is inherited from Casino Royale still works. And there are some individual shots which are fantastic, but the the relentless editing and the fact that the plot pieces don't fit together in a satisfying way is a huge problem so now Stu, we have to rank this film we do we definitely do do you want to try and place it on your list first first i should tell tom in case he didn't know that last week in the casino royale podcast that film toppled goldfinger as Stu's best bond film so the leaderboard has now changed we have been both on Goldfinger as number one until now, in which case Stu has now got Casino Royale as number one. I had Casino Royale as number four because I simply, it, it simply could not replace Goldeneye for me. I, I thought about it. <laughs> That's where it would have gone is number three, I think. But uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I love Goldeneye too much. And I think that's fine. It's no reflection on Casino Royale. It's just it's where the personal preference comes in. So looking at Quantum of Solace and looking at where I think it sort of goes, it's a bit of a tough one because it's either going to go after The World Is Not Enough, sort of around that spot, which would put it into 14th place, but that would put it above Thunderball and You Only Live Twice (laughs) and For Your Eyes Only. And I feel like would I watch it before I watched Thunderball again or would I watch it after For Your Eyes Only? So there's a bit of a gap there. It's it's, Mm. it's either going to be sort of in 14th spot or in 17th spot. Right. Um, do you have any idea where you're going to well, put Well, I mean, look, I worked my way down the list and I, I got to License to Kill and the Living Daylights at number 10 and 11, respectively, on my list at the moment. And I kind of felt like it probably slotted in there somewhere. It felt very Dalton-y. It, it reminded me a lot of License to Kill in the sense that, like, Bond's on a mission. He's he's in South America. You know, he's he's he has his double uh, O license revoked, however, briefly. There, there was a lot of elements there that felt very, very Dalton Bond. And I felt like maybe that's where it sits for me. So that if, if I put them, if I put it underneath 
those two, that would put it in my 12th spot, just above Tomorrow Never Dies. But that feels weird because is it a better film than Tomorrow Never Dies? I certainly, I have a lot of fun with Tomorrow Never Dies. And hey, it's the first rooftop chase since Tomorrow Never Dies. That's true. That's true. Exactly. Look, I won't stuff around too much. I'll I'll put it in 12th spot. I'll put it just below the Dalton's. As I said at the start, I don't hate it. Certainly talking about it with you guys has lowered my, <laughs> lowered my opinion <laughs> of it. But, you know, like I, I was left thinking by a long shot that wasn't the worst Bond film I've ever seen. And, yeah, I think 12 feels okay, especially given that I know that a couple of films are going to go in above it. Well, this is the thing. I'm sort of trying to think with Skyfall and Spectre where they might go. So, look, I think I'm probably happy putting it in 14th spot. Mm. So after the world is not enough, because I feel like that's kind of where it sits for me. I'll put it in 14th. So yeah, again, we're kind of similar, but yeah, I've got it under um, the world is not enough because I think I would watch that more than I would watch this one. Mm. I always have to try and judge the quality of the film versus my personal preference in watchability. <laughs> sure, and it's your list. That, that's the point. I know. I feel I have to justify that constantly, though. Come Tom, on, Tom. Where does it where does it sit for you? Yeah, it's sort of yeah, it's in, it's definitely in the in the bottom third, but I don't think it's at the right. bottom of the bottom third. Uh, <laughs> it is. It's sort of it's somewhere below the middle. So yes, yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies is an interesting one to compare it to because. Tomorrow Tomorrow Never Dies has very little ambition other than to be entertaining. And similarly to Quantum of Solace, there's a, an energy to Tomorrow Never Dies. It always wants to be on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And the benefit of that is uh, I feel similarly about the boat chase in The Man with the Golden Gun as Stu feels about the movie Thunderball, which is it seems to go on for about a week. <laughs> uh, they got a definitely... lot of free boats, Tom. They had to destroy the boat. <laughs> And you definitely can't say that about either of these films. So uh, it definitely doesn't outstay its welcome. And as I said, there, there are definitely Bond films I would I would rewatch less frequently. One of which is Spectre, uh, which ah. is such a mess. It's just just appalling. And it's this it's this vertiginous zigzagging in quality, which I find so fascinating about the Craig films. The both the Moore films from The Spy Who Loved Me and the Brosnan films from the beginning have this slow decline in quality, whereas uh, with Craig, it's zipping back and forth. Uh, from yeah. some of the very best the franchise has to offer to some of the very worst. The graph is very, like, V-shaped, you know, up, down, yeah. up, down. <laughs> it is really interesting. It's, it's definitely, when you talk about Bond eras, that's definitely a defining factor of the Craig ones is just maybe my anticipation was too high for Spectre, but I just had so much excitement for it. And what I got was so disappointing that I haven't rewatched it since seeing it in the cinema. And that's that's the, the, the huge project of this uh of yes, this podcast series indeed. is just how does it stack up? Like, was I justified in ignoring it for the past five years? <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so and I you guys are nearly at the end now, aren't you? We are nearly approaching there. the end. Yes. Yeah, so we've got two more and then we will do a recording after No Time to Die. You skipped the 67 Casino Royale, didn't you? Yes, we, we did. did. Yeah. And you uh, could do the, the television 1954 Casino Royale too, if you really want. That's right. I have heard if you it really felt like self-flagellation. Yeah. So those those ones and I guess other sort of parody type films. Yeah. Could In do like it. Flint, Operation Kid Brother, et cetera, et cetera. Is that the one with Sean Connery's brother? Yes, yeah, Operation Kid Brother starring Neil Connery. And I, yes. think, I think Ursula Andress and at least uh, maybe um, Adolfo Celli as well. It has M and Moneypenny in it. Oh, does it? <laughs> yeah, that, that's the insane thing. We, we Natalie yeah. and I just learned about the existence of this yes. film last week. And I've been reading up on it. I'm fascinated by it because it is bananas. You can just watch it on YouTube. Yeah. 
<laughs> so maybe we'll have to do something like that. Yeah, it's just there's there's so much sort of inspired by Bond. I guess it would be more of a how Bond has reflected in our culture because you can't say spy movie without thinking of Bond, even though arguably, you know, some people say that they're not spy movies because, as Stu keeps saying, Bond is the worst <laughs> spy. <laughs> You know, if you think of a John le Carre or, or those kinds of ones, it's a more spy spy. Um, but, yeah, maybe we could, like, watch a Tinker Tailor Soldier spy or that kind of thing and just – or The Kingsman is the other one that's – I've not seen The Kingsman, Kingsman films. Kingsman is, is definitely inspired by Bond. It's a yeah. real Bond. So we could watch those and sort of talk about them and how they compare. But then we are going to start Raven Bat, which is us oh, right. all the Batman films. <laughs> starting uh, which, in 1966 i hope yes. uh, absolutely we are yes but not 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 starting in what was it 1948 no no we, we, we've decided that the, you're, the you're two, not going to do the serials no we, we won't do the two serials preceding the 66 batman i think we, we won't subject <laughs> anyone including ourselves to that <laughs> so if you have a uh, favorite batman film uh think about that if you want to come but, but we are definitely doing mask of the phantasm i'll just say that now Oh, cool. So there'll definitely be at least one animated film, but I'm letting Stu kind of guide the Batman content if there's extras that I don't know about because Stu is the Batman connection um, <laughs> for, for that particular one. So that means, Stu, you're going to have to step up with some research and stuff, you know. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's going to be tough from the zero I do currently. No, no, no. I'm not saying you do zero. I'm just, I'm just saying that uh, I'm going to lean on you for Batman knowledge. <laughs> Because my comments will be like, so why did they put the nipples on the bat suit? Or more importantly, why did they take them off then? Like maybe that was a good idea. <laughs> there will be bat nipple discussion, I can promise you. Um, well, let me tell everybody as we wrap up that you can hear Tom Selinski on the Best Pick Pod, which is a fantastic podcast. I've been like flat out the last couple of weeks, so I haven't li- – what was the most recent one I listened to? I think I went back – and listen to an older one. I think I went back and listened to Out of Africa, which I've never actually seen. So that was really interesting. And then I should explain what the podcast is. Tom and his two co-hosts, Jessica and John, pick out of a bag names of Oscar Best Picture winners, and then they review them. And they talk about the year it came out, all the other films that it was competing against, whether the Oscars got it right. And then they look at the film and uh, and discuss it as a, as a work of art. And it's brilliant. And anytime you hear me doing like intensive deep dive research into Bond films, it's because I've been inspired by Best Big Bond <laughs> <laughs> to be more detailed. But um, what do you have? Because you, you're sort of coming to the end of your adventure in Oscar Best. Yeah, Picture. we've got we've got less than a year to go releasing one episode every two weeks. Uh, so we'll be done at the current rate by August next year. Wow. Uh, so yeah, we're uh, the next one out is My Fair Lady from 1964, oh, okay. <gasps> uh, which was a, a very interesting conversation. I can imagine the whole betrayal of Julie Andrews and then her coming back and winning the Best yeah. Actress for Mary <laughs> Pippins. And it was doing research for that episode into uh, Hollywood ghost voices that led me to Donny Osmond doing uh, the ah, voice of uh, Lee Shen in yes, uh, the land. So it course, all comes full circle. Because it was Marnie Nixon, the famous voiceover artist. Yeah, that's who right. There's all, all sorts of stories about that. And you, a, little, a little nugget from Best Pick from 1964 is uh, sometimes ghost voicing gets very complicated. Singing in the Rain is a film which is all about ghost voicing. Mm. Um, mm. But in that film, Jean Hagen, whose character is made oh. fun of because her Brooklyn accent doesn't match her sophisticated image, that wasn't Jean Hagen's natural speaking voice. She was doing a voice. She was a very accomplished voice actress. Yeah. And in fact, 
when Debbie Reynolds is filmed dubbing Gene Hagen's dialogue for the film within the film, it was felt that Debbie Reynolds' voice wasn't quite right. So it's actually Gene Hagen dubbing her own voice. <laughs> oh, that's glorious. More than that, Fantastic. Debbie oh, Reynolds' singing voice, she was barely 20, wasn't thought to be strong enough for songs like Would You and You Are My Lucky Star. And so a woman called Betty Noyes was brought in to dub Debbie Reynolds for some of her songs. And there's a wonderful documentary on BBC Four and Betty Noyes' daughter is interviewed. And she says, I can't watch Singing in the Rain anymore because there's that scene at the end where they pull up a curtain to reveal that it's Debbie Reynolds singing for Gene Hagen. And what I want to know is who's going to lift up the curtain to reveal my mother? Oh, I know. Isn't it sad? That's so sad. But also, did you say her name was Betty Noyes? Betty Noyes, yes. Nominative determinism strikes again. That is the most gangster name. That's so good. <laughs> Betty Noise, bring in the sounds. Like, that's <laughs> genius. That's, oh gosh, I had no idea there was so much. I think I had heard that Debbie Reynolds had been dubbed in parts, but by Gene Hagen, that's so, because she won an Oscar for that role. <laughs> She's amazing in that film. Um, uh, nomination, that, I believe. I don't think she won. Oh, didn't she? Oh, I thought she did. No, um, nomination for Best Sporting Actress. Is it that the film that just didn't get that many Oscar nominations? Singing in the Rain? No, it didn't. It was it was very overlooked. We talk about this in our episode on The Greatest Show on Earth, which is the film that won Best Picture that year. And I think there are two things going on. Firstly, there's the fact that it's only with hindsight that we see that as the MGM musical film where everything came together. It wasn't really until those movies were re-released as part of a package in the 60s that people started identifying Singing the Rain as, oh, that's the really good one. But also the previous year, An American in Paris had won Best Picture, which is another Gene Kelly singing a dancing film. So I think uh, Academy voters felt that they'd... They They'd already did their counter MGM yes. musicals very recently, and they didn't have to overpraise another one coming off the production line because hmm. MGM was knocking those out three or four a year. It's so good, like it's so funny. It's just so contemporarily funny. It's the, the rarest of things, a perfect film. It, it, it does it, not put it, a it, single it perfectly choreographed foot wrong. And what I love is that the songs they never take over the movie. They're all perfectly placed. Well, it's a jukebox musical. That's that's what I love is that people don't realise it's like it's like Moulin Rouge that they just pulled a bunch of like standards and threw them together. Even Singing in the Rain is from a different show. They're all um, Arthur Freed, Herbnacio Brown songs, and it's yeah. hurt the fact that Arthur Freed had given up songwriting and was now producing MGM musicals. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, there's one one new song in the film which is Make Him Laugh. Uh, yeah, which oh. came about because they, they thought they needed a, a comedy song for Donald O'Connor to do. And Stanley Dolan, the director, suggested uh, Arthur Freed that he could come out of retirement and write a new song for them. And he and Herb Nation Brown got together. And Arthur Freed said, maybe something a bit like Irving Berlin's Be a Clown. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to Irving Berlin's Be a Clown, but it's something a little similar. bit like Irving Berlin's uh, Be a Clown, <laughs> make him laugh, very definitely is. <laughs> to the point where it was said that Irving Berlin was in the recording studio when they were recording it and had to be quickly ushered out of the way lest he kick off. <laughs> it's just like the joke ratio in that film is extraordinary. And even that whole introductory monologue with, with Don Lockwood talking about his career is that, you know, he was always been humble and he's always been cla- he's always been classy but Dignity. humble. Dignity. Always dignity. Always dignity. And just then the shots of what he did to make it. It's, it's just so perfectly pitched. And it's one of those films that you show people who don't think the past was funny. You, you know, sometimes, like, I remember in school loving that film and people would be like, oh, it's like an old film. They're, like, boring. And you're like, no, no you don't. 
You don't understand. Well, it's the 1950s taking the piss out of the 1920s. So yeah. There's another reason why it doesn't date. But all the costumes are a bit exaggerated and a bit stylized because they're yes. already looking back 30 years. Yes, yes, exactly. It's why I think Blackadder lasts so well for me because it's yes. all historically set. So, you know, you don't have to worry about weird haircuts and strange outfits and <laughs> because they're all set in the past. They're doing it historically accurate. So, anyway, this has been a fun ramble about film. <laughs> but we should come to the yeah, episode. So more yes. of this. Come to, come to Best Pick Pod it's uh, so where there great. are 70-odd episodes you can already enjoy. So, yes, you can go and follow Tom Selinski at Tom Selinski on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Selinski with a Y. I'm Bohensky with an I, but that doesn't matter because I'm just at Girl Clumsy. And uh, Disco Stew is at Disco Stew, and he doesn't need to advertise, so I do it for him. Please go to patreon.com slash girlclumsy. You can support uh, the recaps and the podcasts through Patreon. NatalieBohensky.com, I should probably spell it. <laughs> it's B-O-C-H-E-N-S-K-I.com is where you can find all the written recaps. And obviously Facebook is uh, facebook.com slash Natalie's Throne. Or just search for Natalie Bohensky and you'll see a picture of me dressed as Daenerys Targaryen holding three kittens. You can't miss me. I probably need to get that updated. That's not relevant anymore. Or don't and let it become an increasingly bizarre non sequitur. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So sort of referring to myself as mother of kittens just makes me sound a bit crazy now. (laughs) Um, So, Tom, this is probably the last of you, I think, now for the Raven Bond project. Seems likely. Because we have two more films to go and we will be having a guest for Skyfall. And then we've decided that Stu and I are just going to nut out Spectre by ourselves. I think that's what we need. Bring it it home with the the two we started. Yeah, we just need to, between the two of us, I just need to yell at Stu (laughs) two hours about Spectre and occasionally let him get a word in. So that's, that's the plan at this stage. So, Tom, thank you so much. You've immeasurably added knowledge, wisdom, humour, professionalism to the podcast. And uh, follow Best Pit Pod, and we will see you next week for Skyfall. Until then, I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. Not stirred.